Okay. Good morning again. I don't need any of that. I don't need that. Okay, here we go. Well, thank you again for inviting me here. Um, I have my wife and uh, my two boys in the front row, just where I want them. And I also have uh, my little daughter who is in the nursery, and I know that she can't distract me. So I'm very thankful that you have your nursery working this morning. But uh, I am very happy to be here and uh, to, to get to preach uh, this week between Christmas and New Year's. Um, I think is a great opportunity because this is a, a, a very special time of the year. So first of all, let me say to you, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Now let me ask you a question as, as I start this message. Do you ever wish for a do-over? Let me give you maybe an example in my life. It was uh, about 11 Christmases ago. My wife and I had just gotten married, and we were facing our first Christmas, and the question was, you know, what, what's the big gift that we're going to do this year? And uh, I, I'd been smitten on one of those really big high-definition televisions, and uh, somehow I got her to go along with the idea. So we went to those big electronic stores. We got a TV that was so big they had to break it apart to get it in the house, and it's glorious. I mean, I couldn't even wrap my arms around it. It was just, it was just beautiful. And in my joy, I looked at my wife and I said, you know what, honey? This TV cost more than your engagement ring. <laughs> that is one of my do-overs that I, I wish I could have. Because that did not seem to impress her like I thought it would. But the TV is glorious. So... When we think about do-overs, you may have uh, things that you have said that you would like a do-over on. Maybe you want do-overs when it comes to choices that you've made in your life. Maybe do-overs in mistakes. Maybe do-overs in opportunities that you passed up. Maybe do-overs in moral failure. Some do-overs are, are small things, but others can be quite big. You can think of perhaps... Marion Jones, the winner of three gold medals and two bronze medals, the Sydney Olympics. And it was discovered later that she had been doping. and She was disgraced publicly and had all of her medals taken away. There's a fascinating documentary about her called uh, Push Pause, where she goes around the wor uh, world to talk to young kids to say, you know, at that moment where you were thinking about doing something like this, push the pause button. And think about it, because the consequences are so great. She lives with a desire for a do-over, for something that she can't undo. I think Christmas is a particularly uh, poignant season where we think about do-overs. It's certainly a happy time of the year. There's certainly a lot of joy and celebration. But if we're honest, there's also a fair amount of heartache a fair amount of sadness, a fair amount of regret that can come into our minds this time of year as we are kind of brought into this pressure cooker of reflection and family time and all the things that are right and wrong seem to have a magnifying glass on them. You may be at Christmas feeling aches in your heart regarding relationships, relationships that have been broken, relationships that have been stained by sin, 
or even relationships that have been lost, the chair that is not being filled this Christmas because of someone passing away. And you have an ache in your heart to have it fixed, to have it redone. Christmas can also be a time where we reflect on the state of the world, where we get bombarded by CNN and Fox News and uh, these tickers on our, on our phones that tell us how many people were killed in this massacre and what war broke out here and who's starving. And it can absolutely crush us as we cry out, why? The whole world needs a do-over, it feels like. The point is that at the end of the year, we are often brought to a point where we wish for a do-over somewhere. Do you wish for a do-over? The desire for a do-over, I believe, is, is universal. The desire for a do-over may even point to something deep within ourselves, a knowledge that there is a right way and a wrong way. The desire for a do-over is a desire for the right way. Indeed, it is a little pointer that our hearts are seeking perfection. Or another word, our hearts are seeking righteousness. However, if this do-over wish reveals our desire for righteousness, it also reveals, tragically, our lack of righteousness, our lack of perfection. Put bluntly, the life that needs a do-over is a life that falls short of righteousness. And if we are honest with ourselves, we all fall short of righteousness. And that is a very serious issue. I think of the story in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is confronted by the holy God in the year that Uzziah died. His glory of the Lord filled the temple. Angels swarm around him and sing in praise, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The temple shakes. It is filled with smoke. It is awesome and terrifying. And there is nothing between Isaiah and the glory of the Lord. He is beholding the full majesty, the full power, the full holiness of God. And he is overwhelmed. What is his reaction? Is his reaction, oh boy, just what I want. No. Isaiah, a man who would be righteous in the eyes of many in his day, stood in front of that holy God and all he could say is, Woe is me. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. You see, this righteous man in the world's eyes, when he met the true righteous one of heaven, was so oppressively uh, uh, told of his unfitness in front of a holy God that he declared judgment on himself. His unrighteousness was the most important thing. It seared into his head. I am unrighteous. I must be undone. And I tell you that Isaiah's vision 
is something that every single one of us will experience when we leave this world. We will meet the God that Isaiah met. We will meet a righteousness that is so pure and so perfect that it will crush us. And you, at that moment, will wish for a do-over like you have never wished before. We all fall short of righteousness. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our lack of righteousness is our greatest problem. And that's what today's passage is about. Today's passage is God's answer to our lack of righteousness. In this text, we are going to see three reasons why Jesus is the do-over that we all need. So if you are here this morning with a sense that you need a do-over, I have good news for you. If you are here this morning with a heavy heart at broken relationships or lost relationships, I have good news for you. If you are here feeling mastered by some sin in your life, something that completely haunts you and hounds you and brings you down into the mud and you, no matter how hard you try, cannot seem to escape it, I have good news for you. Jesus is the do-over that has come to rescue you. As we look at this passage, a little context is helpful. We come into this passage at the end of John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist, we know, was a, was a fiery, red-headed uh, preacher uh, who, uh, well, I don't eat uh, locusts, so I guess he, he was a little better diet than I did. Uh, no, he was a very fiery, passionate, bold prophet of God. He was the first prophet of God speaking to Israel in 400 years. And so the voice of God is speaking, and the voice of God in John the Baptist is repent for the kingdom of God is near. And the people who heard God's word said, uh-oh, I need my do-over. And so as John the Baptist was out at the Jordan River, he was calling people to a baptism of repentance, which is essentially a baptism crying out, God have mercy on me, I want to do-over. And so all of these people are coming out to John the Baptist, and it's at that point that our story comes up where we meet Jesus. And as we go through this passage, these three different stories, we are going to see the three reasons that Jesus is the do-over that we all need. Let's look at that first reason. If you have your Bible open, we're looking at uh, chapter 3, 21 and 22, the section of Jesus' baptism. We'll look at the first reason that Jesus is the do-over that we all need. As I said, the essence of John the Baptist's message is, You need a do-over. You need to repent. For the kingdom of God is coming. When the kingdom of God comes, God is going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you are not righteous, it is time to get right with God. Join me in a baptism of repentance. And so who was coming out, just to remind ourselves, who was coming out to the Jordan River? Do we know that? 
just the, the people of Galilee, the common people, uh, soldiers were coming out. You're very common, sinful sinners. Just sinner, just typical people. But there was also a group who were not coming out. Do you know who they were? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came out just to look at him. But they didn't want anything to do with his baptism. And so John is out here trying to do two things. Calling people to repentance and second, preparing people for God's Messiah. And the two responses to that message was either yes, I need repentance or no, I'm content with my righteousness. I don't need a do-over. Baptism was an act of repentance. Basically, it's a turning, a desire for God to wash away the sins and give his people a do-over. And in the midst of this big crowd coming out to the Jordan River, we are surprised to see Jesus coming out to be baptized. Now, it's a, it's a curious thing that Jesus, the only righteous one walking the earth, came to be part of a baptism of repentance. Because did Jesus have anything that he needed to repent of? No, he did not. So the question is, what did he come out to a baptism of repentance? He was not there to have his sins washed away. Well, as we, as we look at the text and as we look at Matthew and Mark alongside Luke, we can identify three reasons why Jesus came out to be baptized. The first was to be identified with true Israel. True Israel obeys the word of God. And who was speaking the word of God? John the Baptist. So Jesus shows that he obeys God's word perfectly by obeying the command of John the Baptist who was speaking the word of God. Second, he came out to be revealed as the true son of God. As he is in that baptism and he comes out of the water the clouds open, the spirit descends, and God speaks from heaven to announce to everyone, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Those are some of the most amazing words. God says, I love you. You are my child, my special son, and I am completely proud of you. I make no excuses. I am full of joy when I see you. Those are special words that have never been spoken to anyone else. But God declares, you are my beloved son. Everything about you delights me. You are approved to be in my presence. I welcome you. I wrap my arms around you. I have intimate fellowship with you. You see me face to face. No one else receives the approval of God like Jesus. And so when we see the three reasons that Jesus is the do-over we all need, our first reason is only Christ's perfect life receives God's approval. Only Christ's perfect life receives God's approval. No one else being baptized was declared well-pleased. Only Christ. But there is a third reason that Jesus comes out to baptism. And that is simply this. 
to stand in our place for judgment. We have to understand what the waters of baptism symbolized, what they meant to communicate. You see, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God has used waters again and again as an instrument of judgment. You look at Noah and the flood. The waters came down to judge the wickedness in the world. You think of the Red Sea. God allowed his people through, but used those waters that he held up in walls to come crashing down as judgment upon Pharaoh and his army. The waters in the Old Testament represent judgment. And who goes under the waters of judgment in this passage? Jesus. When he goes under the waters of judgment, he is saying, I stand in your place to receive the judgment. And because he, decide, he comes to take that judgment for us, he becomes the new ark that delivers uh, God's people like it did in Noah's day. He becomes the new passage through the Red Sea. Those who Jesus stands in the place of judgment for are saved. Jesus stands in the place for those who repent of their sins and trust him to fulfill all righteousness. That is what we learn here. My question this morning then is, are you united to Jesus in repentance? Have you repented of your life? Have you repented of your sinfulness? Have you repented of your own search for righteousness in yourself and come to receive the one who has been has received the waters of judgment in your place. Now remember that there were those who came who did not believe they needed a do-over. They were the people who did not come out, who did not receive baptism, because they were content that I don't need a do-over. I've got it. I've been good enough. I've obeyed the law well enough. But as we look at the end of the story of the Gospel of Luke, what do we find of those people? They become the lost. It is those who admit their sin, who come to the baptism of repentance, that are counted as the true people of God. Consider the, the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son. Which child goes to the banquet? The one who goes out into the far country and repents is welcomed into the banquet. Who is the one left standing outside of the banquet? The older brother, the one who felt too righteous to share that banquet with his unrighteous brother. The one who is lost out of the banquet is the one who refuses to repent, who refuses to cry out, Jesus, be my do-over. My question for you today is, are you crying out, Jesus be my do-over? Or are you saying, I've done a good life and I'll be fine on my own? Do not be found in that category. You lose the banquet. Let us now look at the second reason. The second reason that Jesus is the do-over that we all need is only Christ's perfect life fulfills our hopes of restoration. As I said in our introduction, sometimes Christmas can, can just put a spotlight 
on what's missing, on what's out of place, on what's not going right, on, on the relationships that we have broken, on the relationships that are not around that table because of some argument or some sin, whether it be theirs or yours. And there's also that aching feeling of those people who have passed that first Christmas without your loved one. And every Christmas after that does not feel complete. You look at the world around you and you see the violence, you see the pollution, you see the disease, you see the hunger, and you, you look at this and you, you cry out for a do-over on a grand scale. The world needs fixing. It needs brought back and redone because it's getting very, very tragic. And so as we look at this genealogy of Jesus, and I know that genealogies are not exactly the most exciting parts of Scripture, but I would say to you, if you look at this genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, 23 to 38, you will see Christ has come to fulfill our hopes of restoration. You see, Luke's genealogy tells two stories. The first is our story of fallenness. It goes from Jesus all the way back, 77 generations. Jesus is the 77th generation. But there are 76 generations before Jesus, before we come to Adam, the son of God. And so Luke is connecting the first Adam to the second Adam who is Jesus in this long genealogy, who are both called the Son of God. But what do we learn in the first story, the story of our fallenness? What do we learn in those 76 generations between Adam and Jesus? Well, what happened to Adam? Where did he begin? Where did Adam begin? He began in the Garden of Eden. He began in a place that was perfect. He began in a place that had a, 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 a perfect helpmate. He had perfect fellowship with God. He had joy inexpressible with him every single day. And he had one rule. Do not eat the fruit from the tree that I have forbidden from you. And he could not keep that rule. And when that happened, everything broke down. Everything fell apart. He was separated from God. He experienced estrangement in his relationships, and he experienced a cursing upon the ground, which made everything that was blessed cursed. And Jesus had a, or, and Adam had a child, and a child after that, and no child after Adam was ever good enough to go back to the garden. Every child after Adam inherited his sinfulness, his brokenness, his penchant for adding misery as opposed to taking it away in this world. We have 76 generations of people who failed to live righteously. In fact, we have 76 generations of people who made a bigger mess of the world. This includes even the heroes of Scripture, like Noah. Noah was the second Adam. He had the chance to do it all right. He was the most righteous person on the face of the planet. He was saved from the flood. It was just him. It was just him. He had a chance to fix everything. But what do we discover? He also blows it. He curses his family. He gets in uh, drunkenness and debauchery. 
and he falls from righteousness as well. So what we see in these 76 generations is a condition that, that uh, it gathers all of us in it. We are fallen, we are sinful, and there is no way for us to break out of it. You are a sinner because you were born a sinner. And that's your condition. You sin because you are sinful. So that first story is the story of our fallenness. Not a single one of these generations ever saw the clouds open for them and said, I am pleased with you. Not a single person in these 76 generations have been declared pleasing in God's sight. This is what we hear as the condition of all of those 76 generations. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul tells us, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. What does this 76 generations of failure tell us? It tells us something so poignant. It says, to be saved, a different sort of son has to come. A different son must come. One who is not of this line, but who is also with us. And that is the good news. Because praise God, a different son has come. And that is the second story that we see in Luke's genealogy, which is God's promise of restoration. The second story of Jesus' genealogy is the story of hope in the promised one. Look at the names. You see Adam and Abraham and David, and you look at your scriptures and you find that God, even in the sinfulness of Adam, promised him that there will become a child through the woman that will crush the head of the tempter, that will crush the serpent. He then speaks to Abraham and says, there will be one of your children who will become a blessing to all nations. He speaks to David. He says, there will be a child of your line who will be on the throne forever and will rule in righteousness. Can you take a moment to appreciate that genealogy on an apologetic level? These names and these stories were written Hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus. These prophecies and promises were written hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus. They were there without a fulfillment. And then a fulfillment came. Do you know what it means for these prophecies to actually be fulfilled on the 77th generation? Only a Lord of history, one who is eternal, who is shaping history to his ends, could bring these promises to a fulfillment. There is no other way. This genealogy shows us that the God that we worship is the God of history. He is the God of heaven. The good news is that the second story of God's uh, restoration is greater than the first story of our fallenness. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 5, verse 17 through 19. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, 
So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What could not be accomplished in Adam's line is accomplished in the line of Christ. Righteousness is given to all who trust in him. And what does that mean for our hopes of restoration? It means that you have an inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth where we are told in the book of Revelation, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Those who are in Christ are brought back into Eden. They receive what was lost in Adam. Those broken relationships, those lost relationships, those tears and sorrows and sadnesses that break your hopes, they are undone in the kingdom of God, for all who trust in Christ. Amen? Jesus is the fulfillment of our hopes for a better world, for all who put their faith in him as the Savior. So my question, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Let's now look at the third reason. Only Christ's perfect life can overcome the tempter. And I know that some of you are here who have a sin that is so besetting that you see no freedom from it. You see no life where it does not rule you. Perhaps you feel mastered by the sin of anger. No matter what you try to do, your anger explodes and destroys people around you. Maybe you feel mastered by the sin of pornography. You don't want it. You, you, there's so much of you that wants to resist it, but you fail again and again. Perhaps you were mastered by the sin of an addiction, by the sin of, of, of uh, drunkenness. I don't know. Whatever your sin is, pride, covetousness, gossip, you wake up every morning and you say, Lord, I do not want that to be true about me today. And you go to bed that night and it's true. You have been mastered by sin. You have succumbed to the temptations of the tempter. And so when I talk about all these do-overs, there's a certain amount of, I've tried it and it's not worked. I have prayed. I have gotten an accountability partner. I have done everything to, to, to grab myself by the bootstraps and get out of this sinful life. But no matter what, I am so broken, I don't seem to be able to be fixed. I can understand that. I can understand that. But I want you to see in the temptations that Satan gave to Jesus in the first 11 verses of chapter 4, that in Jesus' overcoming of those temptations, Jesus provides you the help that you need, the exact help that you need. 
Because though we are constantly falling into temptation, Christ is faithful. We see these three temptations. And what does Satan say to try and get him to succumb? He says, if you are the Son of God. He plays on the, the, the idea that maybe he isn't. And if he was, he would be different. He would have the right to do all of these things. He tries to play on, on Christ's identity by putting that little if. If you are the Son of God, prove it. And that's the temptation. But Jesus responds to each of these temptations not by proving that he is the Son of God by his own power, but by proving that he is the Son of God by perfect faithfulness to his Father in heaven. As we look at the temptation for the bread, he says, take, take this stone Make it bread. Feed your hungry stomach. And Jesus says to him, man does not live by bread alone. When he says that, he is saying that he lives by the word of God, not his own wisdom. When he has offered all the kingdoms of the world, all he has to do is bow down to, to Satan for a second. He resists, and by that he shows that he serves God's kingdom, not his own pursuit of fame and glory. When he is taken to the pinnacle and he is asked to demonstrate that he is God's beloved by being rescued miraculously, he resists so that he can show that he trusts in God, not in his own powers. In sum, Jesus lives in perfect faithfulness to his Father. He never succumbs to temptation. He is the only one who goes through this world without sin. Jesus' faithfulness gets victory over the tempter. Look at verse 13. Satan departed from him until an opportune time. Those are significant words. It says that Satan gave up. He had no victory. He had no chance of getting Jesus to fall into temptation, so he departed. He left. He gave up. Jesus' faithfulness gets the first victory over Satan right here. But ultimately, his victory occurs at the cross, where he pays for the sins of his people and resists Satan's temptations triumphantly for the last time. You heard in those temptations, if you are the Son of God. When you read him on the, the story of Jesus on the cross, what do you hear the crowd saying? If you are the Savior, save yourself. If you are God's Son, come down from that cross. It's the same temptation. Prove that you're better than this. And Jesus does not succumb to that temptation. He does not save himself so that he can save you. Here's the significance of that for all of us who feel mastered by sin. Jesus has defeated the tempter by his perfect faithfulness, by his payment for our sins on the cross. When you are united to him, Christ's death for sin is your death for sin. Christ's victory is also your victory. Christ's righteousness is also your righteousness. The bottom line is this. Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will, shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The bottom line is this. Satan has no claim on Christ. And if you are in him, he has no claim on you. The righteousness of Christ doesn't merely give us what we need to stand before God on judgment day. It also gives us what we need to be free from sin here and now. In Christ's righteousness, not in your own willpower, but in Christ's righteousness, we have the power to rebuke Satan and to live for God. Have you accepted Christ's death as your own? Have you accepted Christ's righteousness as your own? Because here's what you do when Satan or temptation comes. You say, that sin has been paid for, and you don't own me. I am Christ's, and Christ will deliver me. Jesus is the Savior of the world because he is the do-over that we all need. He is the one who alone receives God's approval, alone fulfills God's promises, alone is able to remain faithful to God, never succumbing to temptation. His life is the only life that can be received in heaven. He is God's beloved Son in whom God is perfectly pleased. The glorious truth of the gospel is that all of this is true of you when you repent of your sinfulness and place your faith in Jesus as your righteousness and atonement for sins. Jesus' righteousness is yours. However, it must be stressed that if you have not trusted in Christ alone, this truth is not owned by you. If you have not trusted in Christ, you do not stand approved by God. You do not have any hope of the restoration of all things. And you are mastered by the tempter. And your end will be the same as his. But you can be part of Jesus' line and know his salvation. The Bible says to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does this mean? When you are united to Christ, then the words that God speaks to Jesus, he also speaks to you. You are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. In the gospel, our perfect Heavenly Father looks at you as he looks at Jesus. The love that God has for Jesus, he has for you. The joy that the Father has for Jesus, he has for you. The affection that the Father has for Jesus, 
He has for you. When we place our faith in Jesus, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. Today the offer of salvation is given to you. Jesus will give you his perfection. You can be part of his godly line. All you must do is repent and trust in him as Lord and Savior. Believe in him as your personal Savior. Have you done this? Do not delay. Start each day with repentance and faith in Jesus. And you will find the righteousness of Christ giving you all that you need. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that in a world like the world that we live in, that seems so broken, so corrupted, so full of injustice and unrighteousness, that you have sent your Son to make all things new. I thank you, Father, that in a world that has me in it, with my heart and my sinful bent and my rebellious desires and all the wrong things that I have done and all the wrong things that I have thought and all the soiling that I have done to your very good creation, that you have sent your Son, Jesus, to give me repentance and life. And Father, I thank you that for every single person in this room who comes to you in repentance, that comes to you in faith, that cries out, I do not want to be mastered by this sin. I call Jesus my Lord. That you offer deliverance. That you give your perfect righteousness of your Son to each and every one of us. That you call us your beloved child in whom you are well pleased. Father, if there is anyone here today who has refused to come and receive Jesus' righteousness, who has refused to seek Jesus as their do-over, Father, that you would open their hearts and bring them to you, that they would have Christ and his righteousness. And it is his, in his name we pray. Amen. And now we're going to sing. So please stand for O Come All Ye Faithful.